time for whacked out simple stuff. Uh, so we're going to pray first, and then we have a video today. Uh, it is a teaching on the character of God that's on right now media that I really like. And I would like to share it with you. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, so let's pray together first, and then we'll watch the video. Father in heaven, we thank you for this season. The season of thanks, the season of look forward already. It just seems like Christmas is right around the corner. We thank you for the way that you've been blessing us, adding so much to our lives. Uh, new friends, uh, new work to be done, new income, new health, new challenges. Um, and we, well, we pray that we'll step up and be ready for those things. And with you in us and working on us, we know that we'll do amazingly. Uh, we ask you to take over our time together as we worship, as we watch a video, as we study the word, as the children go to their lesson and, and have fun there uh, doing stuff that's kind of more age appropriate for them, um, including learning about Jesus in their own way. We pray that you'll take care of all of it, make it all work just the way it should. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. started all this problem. We got here and started updating the update at 6 o'clock. And at 6.25 it was still updating. It turns out that God's anger in the Bible.
slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. We're going to look at this third phrase, that God is slow to anger. Now, that might surprise some people. Isn't the God of the Bible mostly angry, striking people down for their sins? Well, it turns out that God's anger in the Bible is way more nuanced than that, and way more interesting. In Hebrew, the phrase slow to anger is pronounced erek apayim, or literally, long of nose. But what does God's patience have to do with a long nose? Well, first, we need to look at the common biblical Hebrew way to say that someone is angry. Their nose burned hot. Like in the story of Joseph, when Potiphar thinks that Joseph tried to sleep with his wife, his nose burned hot. It's usually translated, his anger burned. It's describing how your body, especially your face, gets hot when you're filled with anger. And so in Hebrew, the main words for anger are either nose or heat or hot nose. This is why a patient person is called long of nose. It takes a long time for their nose to get hot. Like in the biblical proverb, a person's wisdom is their long nose, that is, their slow anger. Now, in the Bible, God gets angry numerous times, but God doesn't have a nose or get hot. These are metaphors, using our experience of hot anger to describe how God feels when he witnesses human evil. Just like you would get angry if you saw a child being bullied on the playground, so God gets angry when humans oppress each other and ruin his world. In the Bible, God's anger is an expression of his justice and his love for the world. But he's slow to anger, which means he gives people lots of time to change. Like in the story of the Exodus, when Pharaoh enslaves the Israelites and has their baby boys thrown into the waters, God sends Moses to confront Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's given ten chances to let Israel go free, but after the tenth refusal, Pharaoh rides out with his chariots to destroy the Israelites, and so God destroys him in the waters. Pharaoh's own evil is turned back upon him, and we read that this is an act of God's hot anger. Now, that's really intense, but think about it. God wouldn't be good if he didn't get angry at Pharaoh's evil and eventually do something about it. And notice that God's anger is expressed by handing Pharaoh over to the consequences of his own decisions. And this is actually how God's anger is shown throughout the scriptures. Like in the story of the Israelites. Over and over again, for hundreds of years, they betray the God who rescued them from slavery. And though he gives them many chances to turn around, they keep giving their allegiance to the gods of other nations. And each time we read that the hot anger of God burned against the Israelites. But notice what always follows. God gave them over into the hands of their enemies. Israel wanted to serve the gods of other nations, and so God, in his just anger, gives them what they want, as those nations circle back and defeat Israel. This is similar to what the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Romans. He says God's anger is being revealed against human evil, and then three times he says what that looks like. God hands people over to their destructive desires and decisions, even if it leads to death. But, Paul also says, God is patient giving people time to come to their senses and change. Because remember, God's anger is a response to human evil, and it's based on a deeper character trait, his compassion and his loyal love. God is not content to let people sit in their own self-destruction. In the Bible, God's on a mission to rescue. This is why Jesus said that he was going to Jerusalem to die, as a demonstration of God's love for his enemies. 
he would stand in the place of his people who were choosing self-destruction and take the consequences of their decisions on himself. In Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we see God's anger at evil and his love for people working together to provide forgiveness and life for a humanity lost in self-ruin. So God's anger in the Bible is really important, but it's not the end of the story. When God is angry and brings justice, it's because he's good. And he's extremely patient, working out his plan to restore people to his love. And that's what it means to say that God is slow to anger. Now you can see why I like that video. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you are a God who is slow to anger. We thank you that you have a long nose. Lord, we pray that we'll be a people of a long nose. We live in a day when things are going on in the world that we just don't agree with. We don't understand why people do some of the things that they do. And it's like all day intervening, interfering, connecting, changing what we're trying to do, even trying to live for you. And so, Lord, we pray that we will, like you, be people who are slow to anger. At the same time, Lord, we pray that we will be a righteous people, a people who make right choices. We pray that we will be a merciful and gracious people, and that just as we saw your anger and your compassion joined together in what Jesus did for us, that it will be joined, these things will be joined together in us every day. Every day we can make the good choice to love others, to be gentle and kind and good the best we can, even when it's hard, even when we feel like we could just be frustrated. We pray that you'll walk with us and help us have that long nose slow to anger. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. We are going to do the same motion video that we did on Sunday. So some of you have already seen this. So if you would stand up with me. Children can come up front if you want to be at the front. This is my cheat sheet. In case anybody wanted to know. Me. Me, me. Me, me, me. All right. Stand right there. Are we ready? Okay, go ahead. As long as it works. No.
So the good news is we're done with all the electronic struggles for the day, at least as far as I know, um, because we're old school, paper and pen now from here on out, except for possibly Tommy, who's doing all that hard work and making sure it goes out to the internet live back there. And then later, I'll do the editing and we'll get the podcast out. Um, that'll be, that, that stuff will come later, but right now, we're going on paper. While they're finishing passing those out, a little side note, uh, we are nearing very much the end. And so this coming Sunday, we will announce our new spiritual discipline emphasis. So November 22nd, which is, if I've got my math right, tomorrow, right, is technically November 22nd. Yeah, that's right. And so uh, Sunday, we will start a new spiritual discipline emphasis. And there we do about 10 or 12 of those. And the, the goal is to do... Um, a five-year rotation. So if you were here four years ago or whatever, uh, you might 
We might be going back over things that you've already seen or heard, but we always kind of do it a little bit different every time, so it'll be new uh, in some way or another. All right, so we are going to talk about how do you know. Quick preface to this discussion, okay? Um, I went and visited a friend in eastern Kentucky who was pastoring down there, and while we were there, uh, we, he and I got in a debate as to whether or not you can know that somebody else is a Christian. <clears throat> we did a devotional with the kids, put them to bed. My daughter, uh, Ariana, was there. And, um, and then his kids went to bed, and then we were sitting in the living room drinking hot chocolate. started about 11 o'clock. About 3.30 in the morning, uh, we called it quits as we were, we were going through the scripture, all different verses and everything like that. And um, the argument was whether or not you can know for sure that someone else is saved. That's the que- that was the question. So today we're going to talk about how to know if a person is born again. That is the topic. So you see where it says how to know. Well, what we're trying to know is whether or not a person is born again. By the time we're done, I think we'll see the answer to that question he and I had. Now, if you look over to the right-hand side, it says start. That's where we're starting at. I, I write... The, I, do these worksheets purposely kind of chaotic because then that way it kind of helps keep attention, that kind of thing. You feel free to doodle or color or add stuff. All right. And so the first thing on start, so without anybody knowing the references or with anything else, what do you think the first thing that a person has to, would be true about a person in order for them to be born again? What would you put in that first blank without even looking? Before that. So it's like, there's confessing of sins that goes on on Jerry Springer, right? I'm sorry, I didn't tell you. He's actually your kid, right? So that's not it before that. But you're right. We do, that, that is part of it, but belief. Believe, right? So you're saved by grace through faith. No faith, no grace. It's not that the grace doesn't exist, but the grace can't get to you. So believes is the first blank there. And so most all, all of the references tonight are going to come out of the book of 1 John. And so if you have your Bible, you can gra- snatch it up, and, um, or your electronic or whatever, and you'll find 1 John toward the back of the New Testament, uh, essentially right in front of Revelation. So if you get in there, to Revelation, after whatever notes in the back, it's kind of work from the back, you'll go Revelation. A little before that is the 1 John series. All right, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, Revelation, like that. And we're actually in 1 John. Okay? And so under believes, the blanks there are 1 John. That's the, the, the book is 1 John. And then the first little blank is 4.15. So it's chapter 4, verse 15. And I'm just going to read it real quick. We'll let you all read some in a minute. 1 John 4.15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides him and he in God. And so... It's about believing that Jesus is the Son of God in that case. And then if you look a little further in 5.1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. And so now there's a sign there below that. Now my paper, the top sign says Jesus, Son of God. And the bottom sign says Jesus, the Savior. So Jesus, Son of God in that first set of four blanks, and Jesus the Savior in the bottom set, and then over to the left, I just put Son and Savior. Okay, 
So basically, it starts with a person has to believe. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so on, see the little arrow where it says start? Over here next to the brain. Not, believe it or not, that's a brain. <laughs> Believes. Now you know it's the brain. First John, four fifteen and five one, and then the signs right here say Jesus, Son of God, and Jesus the Savior. Yep. And then out to the left it says Son and Savior. The two things about Jesus you kind of gotta know is that he's the Son of God and he's the Savior. Even when you get into Romans. 10 is talking about believing, right? We believe in our heart, confess our mouth, what? He was the Son of God. God raised him from the dead, right? And that he is Savior and Lord. So that's that's basically it. That's, that's how you get to point A in salvation. Now, immediately, there could be somebody in this room that does not believe that. I don't, they might say, well, I don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Or I don't believe that he was the Savior, like he paid the price for my sins. If that is not true, if you don't, then you are not born again. According to Scripture, according to what we just read. And according to John 3, if you're not born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. That means you won't go to heaven when you die, unless you get born again between now and then. It also means that you can't recognize God at work on earth or let God work in you. Okay, that's all part of it. So God, the kingdom of God is where God is in charge. He reigns. He rules. And if you want to be part of the kingdom of God, you do that by getting born again. And you do that, first of all, by believing. But let's say there's somebody in the room that says they believe, but they actually don't. How would you know the difference? Guy comes in, named Rob, and he sits on the end there across from Chris, and he, he's wearing a nice, uh, nice outfit, looks perfectly normal, clean haircut, brought a Bible with him. And he says, I'm a believer. I'm born again. I'm a Christian. But the truth is, he's not. He's pulling the wool over everybody's eyes. He's pretending to be saved. He's, he wants, the peop wants people to do what he wants them to do. How would you know? That's the question, isn't it? In that moment, I submit to you, you really can't. Can you know what somebody else believes? Well, sometimes you can, can't you? Right? So, OSU Michigan fans in the room, don't go hoot and holler or anything. We're not going to get into sports or whatever, right? But you can pretty much tell an OSU fan from a Michigan fan during the game, during discussions about the game, after the fact, right? Because they believe that one team is better, not as strong a belief as salvation, but they believe one team is better, or they believe that one team deserves their support, right? So then they'll speak against the other team or speak for their team. So there are actions that tie to belief. In the, during the Enlightenment many years ago, back in, the, in time, the concept developed that a person could believe something was true but not actually do anything about it. That's why it's called enlightenment. There are a lot of things that happen, philosophical things, thought, new thought processes and like that people figured out. But if you did not believe that your chair would hold your weight, you would be thinking any moment I might fall. You'd always, right? So belief is not really meant to be divorced from action. So you can kind of tell what people believe by what they do. But if they're flat out lying, you don't have no way of knowing. All right? But there are some other ways that we can know whether a person is born again or not. And we're going to follow the arrow down to the left, and you'll see a, a picture of a book there. And the arrow is pointing into the book. The blanks for the book are on the left, 
And the top blank is obeys, O-B-E-Y-S. And it's 1 John 2, 3 is the reference. Does anybody have their Bible open to 1 John and would like to read verse chapter 2, verse 3 for us? Going once. Two, three, yep, 2, 3. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. Okay, that's nice and simple and straightforward, isn't it? All right, so this is what has happened to me and my per and I speak from personal experience over a period of time as I learned things that Jesus wanted me to do. I said, well, I want to do that. And sometimes it took me months or years to get to the point where I would do what Jesus wanted me to do in that area. But now I can look back at some of the things that were like that 20 years ago and go, but I do that all the time now. Right? But for a long time, it was like, oh, man. And I still have things today. There are things that I don't do that I should or that I do that I shouldn't. And I know that what God wants me, and I'm working on it. It's a work in progress. Okay? So it doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect just like that. Uh, never make a mistake, never a misstep. But what it means is when you are told, when you learn what it is that God wants you to do, you obey to the best of your present ability. All right? If, you, if you're sent to the kitchen to prepare dinner and dad wants steaks, but you don't know how to cook steak, all you know how to make is grilled cheese and soup, right? then dad's probably going to get grilled cheese and soup. If dad says, but I wanted steak, you can say, well, I really only knew how to make grilled cheese and soup. Now, if dad's mad at that point, dad is unreasonable. See what I'm saying? He's not. He's being unreasonable because he's asking you to have made something that you're not capable of making. Does that make sense? So with God's the same way. God is working in you, and he's always empowering you, making you more and more able to obey and follow his commands, but he only expects you to hold on to that which you've already attained, to hold on to that which you're already capable of. Okay? Now, the flip side of that would be if you, um, if you do know it and you intentionally don't do it, then you have another problem, and we'll get to that in a minute. So from the book... Follow the kind of bulky arrow down to the right, and you see the running man or kind of scooting man, and you see a, a, that's supposed to be like a mirror or a window, and Jesus is pictured there. And the reference that goes under that is 1 John 2 5. So the line under the scooting man is 1 John, and the line under where it says Jesus is 2 5. Okay, let's see. Karina, are you taking notes today? No? Okay. Um, everybody's got their head down. Nicole, what did, what did you put on the very first blank under start? Very good. Coming back. That was awesome. Throw it at Nicole. <laughs> Sorry, Tony. <laughs> Sorry, Tony. Oh, that's funny. You come to New Heights, you're in, you're in real danger. Okay. Um, all right, so 1 John 2.5. Um, 1 John 2.5 says, But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, listen to it, by this we know that we are in him. It's simple. Do you do what you know God wants you to do or not? Okay? And then it goes a little further. The one who's... Wait, hold on. Yeah. Hmm. 
I put the I may have put the wrong reference there for the exact for the uh, mirroring. Hold on, I'll find it real quick. Okay, we're gonna go on. I'll come back and I'll give you the actual right reference. I apologize. Okay, so follow the arrow down to sin. And under under the that's sin marked out, right? The blanks there are first John three nine. And first John five eighteen. Okay, does anybody have 1 John 3 9 they can read it for us? I can, I can start voluntolding people. Tommy, okay. No one who has been born of God practices sin, because his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin continually, because he has been born of God. Okay, so in other words, John is saying, if you have. Christ in you, if you've been born again, you can't keep on. And when you see that word practicing, it means keep on doing, right? Keep on doing something. You practice something, you kind of get good at it, if you will. Doing that. Um, and that is because his seed, that's God's seed, abides in him. All right? And then 1 John 5.18 Bless you. Who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Okay, and so the key words, if you will, are in the boxes: deliberate and keep on. Those are the key words. So, will you keep doing what it is that you know that God does not want you to do? Now, it doesn't mean. Will you never fall, never make a mistake, never stumble, never be tempted, right? But will you, let's say God has convicted you that you need to stop lying, uh, bearing false witness, whatever, then um, will you continue lying or will you grow in your ability to stop lying? Will you continue taking what doesn't belong to you? Sneaking, manipulating the situation. Like some people, are like, well, I never take what doesn't belong to me, right? But the one who hangs around on phone while they're supposed to be or paying, they're supposed to be working, they're stealing from their boss. The one that takes stuff home, um, the one that uh, steals time. You should be maybe reading or studying in your Bible or serving or giving. Or those are that's all thievery. And so, if God has convicted you to stop doing that, will you continue to do it, or will you walk away from? Those things. And that, so keeping on means continuing to do those things, repeating or practicing those things. And it is a deliberate choice. That's different from falling into temptation or slipping, right? So, like, if, for example, before I got saved, I, I was a liar. And I did it fairly proficiently. In fact, I used to, I jokingly say I could have been a con man. Except I was too nervous about what people thought of me all the time. I was always wrapped up in uh, like self-reflection or being like kind of egocentrical, where I was worried what people would think of me. Okay, and so 
after I got saved for two and a half years, I was convicted I had to stop lying. Like no more lies. And then I, I remember the last kind of like really deliberate lie that I told. So then now if you're talking with me, a lot of times you'll hear me say, it was, like it was 100. Well, it was like, I'll say, it was like 90 to 110, or it was, it was a lot. You know, and what I'm doing there is I'm being careful, I'm over careful, I'm too careful, maybe even, to not lie. Because I know who I was before I got saved. So now I'm just, I'm, I'm talking to you like a normal person, but I'm, um, I remember who I was and I'm trying not to be that person. Now, if I slip then and I tell you it was 100 when it was actually 99 and I think it was 100, then that's not a deliberate lie, right? So people jokingly say, oh, I'm sorry, I lied. Well, but if you didn't do it deliberately, it's not the same thing, okay? And so the bottom line is, it's whether or not you will deliberately do what it is that God has told you not to do. And John wrote, you will not. You will not keep on. You will not deliberately do it. That's what he wrote. Right? So if you're born again and you're continuing to deliberately sin, choose to sin, if you're born again, you continue to keep on doing things, then that's where there's a question about whether or not you're born again. Right? There's this... I, I know it's an oversimple concept, but you were somebody. That somebody died. A new somebody began. The new somebody does not have the same traits as the old somebody. Some things will last, and you got to beat them after a while. It takes a while, but you're different now. You're not the same person anymore. Okay? Follow the arrow over to the left, and you'll see an, a hand with a flashlight under the arrow there, and you got a collection of various things, some love hearts, a cross, a tire, loaf of bread, whatever that rake thing is. All right. Next to that, it says, show love in practical ways. Shows love or show love in practical ways. That's the five blanks before the square. And then the reference is 1 John 3, 18 to 19. Anybody want to read that? I will read it. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We shall know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our heart before him. There it is, that knowing, that understanding is true. Now I know, my heart knows to whom it belongs, that it has been regenerated, etc. Okay? And then also the next line is 1 John 3.14. Okay, and 3.14, going back up to 14, says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. That's how we know. So if you're in the church and you don't love the others in the church, and this is not love like, oh, uh, what was it on from Fert on uh, Sunday? Oh, Tim's so dreamy. Right? It's not love like that. It's love like Tim has a need. How can I help him? Right, what can I do for her? What can I do for him? What can I do for the church? What can I do for us as a group? How can I make things better? Somebody sneezes and you feel no compulsion whatsoever to say God bless you, then that's fine. That which is not your, might not be your thing. But if they, you don't feel compulsion to say God bless you and you also don't feel compulsion to like uh, 
help cook or help clean or give or do anything at all for other people, that, that now it's become a problem because you're, you're unable to love practical ways. If you can't love practical ways, like uh, this gets me with kids. Youth, listen to this, okay? This is really huge. Teenagers who say, I love my parents. My parents are great. But then they'll make their parents repeat two or three times what it is that they've told them to do. That ain't love. That's just the reality. That's not love. You say, well, I'm just doing that because that's my personality or I, you know, I would rather do what I want to do than what they want me to do or because they're being unreasonable. It doesn't matter what your reason is. If your adult responsible person in your life tells you to do something, you now know what it's going to take to demonstrate love toward them. You don't do it. It's a problem. Right? Adults in the room, you're, you go out to dinner, go out to lunch. You might think, well, I'm going to pay for their lunch. If you'll pay for their lunch, that is a practical expression of, toward them of love. But if you'll pay for their lunch and not talk to them about Jesus, that's not love. It's just not. You're, you're, there's some other motivator there. Because if you, you, that person could be saved. They could not be saved. You don't know, but you're not giving them the one thing that they need to go to heaven. But you'll fill them for a few hours with whatever you paid for for their lunch. Practical love includes what the person actually needs. And so... According to what John wrote, that's what we do. We love people in practical ways. I put a loaf of bread there because we give food to people. We, get, we have tires there because we transport people. You understand, those of you who got a ride to church tonight, that was a practical expression of love by the prayer. They didn't necessarily say, I love you when, they, when you got in the car. But resources were spent. Gas, wear and tear on vehicles, time, scheduling, putting up with your whatever attitudes, emotions, whatever that, you know, changes from day to day, that kind of thing, making arrangements, all that. That's a practical expression of love. We do that because we love. Okay? All right. One big, long arrow takes us all the way up around to the top, and there's a reason for that, and it's because this is it. This is the culmination of all of it, all of what John is building us up to. Okay? And it is First uh, John... The first blank is 324, and the second blank is 413. So there's two references. Three twenty-four. 1 John, the, the big blank is 1 John, then it's 324, 324, and 413. Anybody want to read 324? Running out of verses. Okay, RJ will read 324. The one who keeps his commandments aside in him and him and he in him, we know that we know by this that he besides abides in us <clears throat> by the spirit whom he has given us. Okay, so the key in that verse was what? How do you know that you're born again? He just read it. He abides in us. He abides in us. It's the Holy Spirit, right? So now you see these people walking uphill here. There's one guy in the middle. He doesn't really look much different than anybody else, but you'll see there's some arrow coming down from the clouds representing God's Holy Spirit, and there's a light coming out of him, and there's something inside him. 
And then the blanks that go along there, starting at the left, the first blank is has, and it's has the Spirit of God living in him. All the way up along the hill. You'll see it. Has the Spirit of God living in him. And that's what we just read. The believer, the born-again believer, has the Spirit of God loving in him, living in him. Okay, and then we've got 4.13. Go ahead, Arden. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. Okay, very clear. You know that you live in him and he lives in you because he has given you his Holy Spirit. So, which one of these verses makes it possible for us to look at another person who is claiming to be born again and say, you're not born again. Any of them? Now, I think they have a value in that same context, right? So I want to know I'm born again, and all of these verses give, that John says, he basically says, I write these things so that you can know that you know. That's the whole point of what John wrote, right? So, I want to know, and I can know, and this is how, these are how I can know. But in the context of between me and a friend, it can have value. Because, for example, if I see a friend who seems to be deliberately choosing to sin, right? Or they, are, they just keep doing the same. Like I went to them, I said, you know, look, when you lie like that, it really hurts our relationship. I have a hard time trusting you. It's probably affecting other people, too. It's not really... Really think God would want you to stop doing that. And you say you're a Christian, so saying that you're a Christian, you really should stop doing that. You know, repent of that, turn away from it, and let's live the way God would have us to live. And then a month later, six months later, a year later, three years later, they're still doing it. Right? Now that doesn't put me in a position where I'm gonna say, Hey, we've talked about this five times. I think you're not saved. I think you're not a Christian. I think you need to get saved. That's not gonna put me in that position. Rather, it's going to say, look, there is a contradiction here. You are still claiming the name of Christ. You say you're saved, but you're continuing in this. So you tell me what's actually going on. And, and you have that contradiction to present to them. So there's value in it. That's what Matthew 18 is all about, right? And if you can turn them back from these sins that continue to run them into the ground and do, cause them to do bad things, cause them to wind up in a bad place, if you can do that, then... Uh, you have a victory. You've really won somebody. You know, you've really done something. Um, so the reference that I told you, I promised you I would come back to, the reason I messed it up, I think, was because it's the one reference that was not in 1 John. So the blank under the uh, drifting man or sliding man there is actually John. And the reference is 1315. My mind just probably couldn't leave... First John at that time, I think, I don't know. And Jesus said, Jesus is speaking. I'll go back to 14. It says, if then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And then in 15, he says, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. And to extrapolate from that is to say, we do what we see Jesus doing. We do what Jesus did. Now, the, what is the nth degree of that? How, what is the furthest point you can take that? If you're going to t have a friend 
a brother or a sister in Christ. And you're going to do for them what it is that Jesus did. How far does that go? What's kind of like the last thing you can do for them? Die. Right? So then that puts you in a place where if you if this person's a born-again believer and I'm a born-again believer and we're supposed to be loving each other the way Jesus did, we're supposed to be serving each other the way Jesus did, there's kind of like nothing that we hold back. There's really no limit to that, how far you can go. Right? Now, I understand that if the person's not saved, you have less, you have a different responsibility to try to bring them to Jesus. But if they're professing to be saved, and the best, your best understanding is that they're saved, they're saying they're saved, maybe you... Because this is what I, this has a, if I, if I was going to judge somebody's salvation, this is what hap- has happened to me on a number of occasions. Like I see them continually doing things that would seem to say they are not following Christ, but I also see them doing things that seem to say they are following Christ. So I'm like, hands in the air. I wouldn't know. It's not my job to judge that, right? That's what it means when it says judge not lest you be judged. It doesn't mean don't judge sin or sinful actions, right? It means don't judge that person's salvation. So I, I would throw my hands up, it's up to God. But if I have every reason, to believe, they're professing, and I've seen evidence, I have every reason to believe that they're a believer, then the nth degree is I stop at the point where I'd be willing to give my life for them. People are like, I don't think I could do that. That's a lot. Of, that's asking a lot, right? But if you can do it, it's because you have the Spirit of God living in you. See what I'm saying? So, all, and, and by the way, how is it that we manage to show love in practical ways to people that are ir- irritating, uh, that try to remain distant, that continually refuse to let you help them? Like, no, I got it. I can do it myself. Don't come near me. You know, whatever. How is it that you show love in practical ways to those people? You do it because the Spirit of God is in you, and you pray for them, and you continue to look for opportunities, and... You might only get one little thing in where somebody else would be like, yeah, help me out, help me out, help me out, yeah, help me ten times one week, right? And this guy, he's a little bit more tougher nut to crack. you got to work, you got to try hard to try to find a way to, to love that person. You understand? So you do that because the Holy Spirit is in you, and you're persistent, you're following Jesus' example. By the way, Jesus died on the cross as much for the people who were actively killing him as he did for you or me. You follow? So the people that hated him, the people that screamed, crucify him, crucify him, the people that to this day do sinful things, the, you know, the, the terrible things that have happened in war, in the Holocaust, and World War II, and all of that, Jesus died for every person that ever did any of that. And he did it because he knew what God wanted. He was faithful. And that's where we stand. So if you really want to know if somebody's born again, start with yourself and make sure you're born again. <laughs> live the way that God is, is leading you to live. Obey, his, Believe what he said. Obey his word the best you know how to this point. Follow Jesus' example. Do not continue to deliberately sin. That's different than falling into temptation, right? But not to deliberately sin. Do not keep on sinning in ways that you know that God has told you not to. Show love in practical ways to anybody you can, even people that don't want it, right? And then, most importantly, you will know because you have the Holy Spirit. Elsewhere in the Word it says that His Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're saved. That's the solution. If you're doubting your salvation, if you're wondering, 
Odds are you're probably not saved. But you're the one, between you and God, you're the one who has to figure that out. There was a young lady that was from the youth group at East Toledo back in the day, and she was a senior at Clay High School, and they had a senior project which they were allowed to do, and she brought in, a, a, I think it was Sanctus Real, but it was a local Christian band and had a concert. And she stood up at that concert then and explained the gospel. She did. Not a teacher, not a preacher, not a pastor, whatever she did. And she said, if you're not, she quoted what was being said a lot elsewhere, but she said, if you're 99% saved, you're 100% lost. And that's the math of it. Start by believing in what Jesus has done for you and invite him to be Lord and Savior. Recognize that he is the Son of God and Savior of your life. And then you're going you're gonna to go, okay, I surely want to do what he leads me to do. I surely want to not deliberately sin against him. I surely want to show love practically. And all these things be, kind of work together so you can know that you're saved. But it ain't going to work for measuring somebody else. There is a single verse that people have used to support that. And that's the verse that that man used with me that night when we debated until 3.30 in the morning. And it was, you will know them by their fruits. Um, and, and that's it's a little out of context, but it does seem to support that. If you look at somebody and they really don't have it, they're like, they're acting like a jerk, you know, or they're like the guys that are mass murderers. I can't be a saved mass murderer, right? That can't be possible, can it? Well, it could be. I mean, it's really unlikely, but it could be, right? Because people go to doing, like people get saved, believe in Christ, and you don't lose your salvation if you're truly born again. And then they get affected by demons and evil spirits, not inhabited, but affected, and they wind up addicted to drugs or chasing after money or whatever. And those things will make you do all kinds of things that you never thought you would ever do in your life. And it starts small, and it blows up, and they could be a mass murderer in jail. Right? There are guys in jail for 20 years, 40 years, who believed in the Lord before they went in. And they just got wrapped up in doing all kinds of bad decisions and wound up where they wound up. Okay. Does anybody have any questions? If you're in this room right now and you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord, that means he tells you what to do when you do it. As your Savior, that means he paid the price for your sins, but you're willing to. Now we're going to pray together briefly and we're going to conclude our lesson. And then I have cookies and um, cheese balls and um, sweet tea in the cafeteria. Okay. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for not only for sending Jesus to die on the cross for sins and paying for my sins and, and saving me. That's awesome. But in that, you did not have to give us a way to know. That was generous of you. That was further grace. And we are graciously given the opportunity to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are saved. I guess you didn't have to give us a down payment. You didn't have to send your Holy Spirit to live in us, to be a counselor, to teach us all the things that we need to know, all the things that Jesus taught. You didn't have to protect your word from the beginning of time and Moses first writing it down after it was passed from family to family to family unerringly, then written down, then protected over thousands of years to today, perfectly preserved for us except that 
you are love. And your example to us is that you truly love us and you want us to be saved. You want every person to be saved. And you have done those things. You have protected your word. You have made very clear and evident the salvation that is available through Jesus. All creation testifies. So much so that when the time comes, there will only be those who are so grateful, praising you for what you've done, coming into the kingdom, the eternal kingdom, because of what you've done. And then there will be those who are weeping and gnashing their teeth because they will know. But both will be kneeling before you. Both will bow. And Lord, I'm, I'm hoping that in that moment that I'll be bowing before you and I'll be hearing those words, well done, good and faithful servant. But I wouldn't claim them for myself. I just want to serve you daily and figure out how to do the best thing I can. And I certainly don't want to deliberately sin against you Never anymore. Uh, and, I, and I want to feel and know, not an emotional feeling, but a sense of presence of you inside me all the time, working, governing, guiding, healing. I want to follow your example. Maybe there's somebody in this room, Lord, that has not made that decision or has not previously decided to follow you. Help them pray a simple prayer right now in their hearts, Lord, and just say, here I am. I do believe. I ask for your forgiveness through Jesus, your son. And I commit myself into your hands to use as you see fit for the remainder of my days. I would be a follower of Jesus. And if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, You've been saved. The word says that he takes up residence in you and you'll never walk alone again. And now you know how you know. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This concludes our lesson time. There are snacks in the cafeteria. Uh, I have a couple of miscellaneous candy, candy bars right through my hand. Little I can hit Tony Tate in the head, but I can't hit her in the head. Oh. Yeah, I was about to say. Melts in your mouth, down on my head. Now there's two candy bars back there, somebody's going to have to eat. I was just trying to be friendly violent. <laughs>